GraphQL has become a core piece of infrastructure for many software applications. GraphQL is used to make requests that are structured as GraphQL queries and responded to through a GraphQL server. The GraphQL server processes the query and fetches the response from the necessary databases, APIs, and backend services. Around 2016, when GraphQL was becoming popular, a company called Meteor was deciding what to do with its business. Meteor had been started off of the popular framework Meteor.js, which is a system for building real-time JavaScript applications. Meteor.js was loved by many developers, but the Meteor company needed to decide if Meteor.js was the most viable opportunity that it could be pursuing with its resources. From the vantage point within the Meteor company, there were some trends in the front-end ecosystem that were potentially disruptive to the viability of the Meteor project. There were also some large potential opportunities. The dramatic changes to the front-end were coming from a downstream effect of Facebook's open-source technologies, specifically React and GraphQL. Amidst these changes, Meteor, the company, shifted its efforts towards GraphQL and renamed the company Apollo. Jeff Schmidt is the CEO of Apollo, and he joins the show to talk about the GraphQL ecosystem, the business opportunities around GraphQL, and the process of pivoting from Meteor to Apollo. If you are planning a hackathon, check out Find Collabs Hackathons. Whether you're running an internal hackathon for your company, or you're running an open hackathon so that users can try out your product, Find Collabs Hackathons are a tool for people to build projects and collaborate with each other. Find Collabs is a company that I started to allow people to find collaborators for their software projects, and our new hackathon product allows you to organize your hackathon participants and make your hackathon as productive as possible. You can check it out at findcollabs.com. Jeff Schmidt, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure. GraphQL consists of a front-end interface and a back-end middleware layer, and that back-end middleware layer interfaces with existing data sources. Tell me what the front-end developer is doing to interface with that back-end middleware layer, well, the middleware layer and, consequently, the back-ends that are connected to that middleware layer. GraphQL is all about how you connect your back-ends to your front-ends. And in a modern application, you know, if you go back five or 10 years, things used to be a lot simpler. You used to have, you probably have a web server somewhere. It might talk to a database or a couple databases. And then the thing consuming that application would be a web browser, which is almost like this like passive viewer of the HTML and CSS that's coming down from the server. Things have gotten a lot more complicated recently. We've entered this world of apps. And so you have not just web browsers, but many different things all trying to access the services in your cloud. And also instead of one, having one web server, you probably now have many microservices, many databases, many APIs. You're trying to combine all of those different resources in the cloud to produce an experience for your user. So it's where in the past, we used to send HTML maybe over the wire. Now every app has an API inside of it. And GraphQL really answers the question, what's that API that's going to exist inside our application? And in the past, you know, we used REST to build those APIs. And the problem with REST is that you have to write a ton of custom code every time you turn around. So every time you build a new screen in your app, every time you build a new feature, you probably need a different combination of data from a different combination of services. And so in the old way, you probably had a back and for front end team 
that was having to build a new REST endpoint for every screen in your app, GraphQL gives you a query language. So you can flexibly ask for any combination of data and services you need. So you can build app features a lot faster without having to write a lot of glue code every time you need to fetch a different combination of things from the cloud. Why is GraphQL difficult to set up and operate using just the off-the-shelf open source repository, whatever the open source stuff is out there? I think that actually it's gotten very easy to get started with GraphQL, which is super cool. The thing that takes a little bit more thought is as you start to scale from one or two developers using it to five or 10 or 20 people, and as you go from maybe one client talking to one server, how do you scale your graph? Because what we see is it's really easy for people to get started. You can probably get a basic graph up and running in you know, an hour or two if that, and you can get that connected to some React components or a mobile app. But what happens is you know, your graph acts almost like this um, marketplace for data and services. And like any marketplace, it's got this two-sided dynamic where once you've built your graph, once you've taken a few different databases and services and created a scheme around it and made it available in this like very flexible to query format, you'll find that you start using it for more and more features. You'll find that other teams inside your company also want to use that graph. And you'll also find that you want to pull more and more data from a lot of different services or sources into the graph. And that's where you know you start to want to have some sort of set of workflows or processes or ways of managing the graph. You want to start thinking about how you secure a graph because you've got this very powerful query language. You know, you'd never let someone send any SQL query. Even if they had access to the whole database, you wouldn't want to let them run arbitrary queries. You want to figure out how you secure the queries you make. You want to figure out how you do analytics and monitoring. You want to figure out how you, like a huge part of the value of GraphQL is the tooling. It's really powerful if you can get type ed completion of your GraphQL queries right in your editor. You essentially can see like the entire map of all your data right there as like IntelliSense tooltips and VS Code, like compare that to REST where you're hunting for documentation for every endpoint. You find that there's a lot of ways you can get more value out of GraphQL, and there's a lot of things you want to do to really secure and protect your GraphQL API in production. And that's where people start asking questions. You know, as my schema grows, how am I going to manage the schema? Should I put that on a schema server? Should I version it? And the other thing that you encounter is it's so tempting to add so much stuff to your graph that people find that there's this risk of creating a, a monolithic GraphQL server where you just have many different, many different people all trying to contribute code to this GraphQL server you've built, and you can end up in this problem where everyone owns it, so nobody owns it. And that's where approaches like Apollo Federation, for example, can be helpful. You can federate the implementation of a graph over many teams and just have a central gateway server that acts kind of like a query planner. So a query comes in, it's divided into pieces and sent out to these different backend services. Ultimately, it's all about how you build agile workflows on top of the graph. One of the things that was challenging about REST is like REST really encourages you to think in this waterfall way of building APIs, where you build a REST endpoint, you know, you might be able to version your REST API, you might be able to ship a new version of your API every year or two. It's almost impossible to remove a REST API endpoint because you don't know who might be calling it. Whereas GraphQL is a really good fit for a very agile approach to API development, where you build against real user needs, you're constantly able to add and tweak things because you can have great analytics about who's using what, all of which comes back to the declarative nature of GraphQL. So the front-end developer issues a query to the GraphQL middleware server, and that query gets composed from whatever backend data sources and services the middleware layer needs to query. And you mentioned the term query planner, which you often hear associated with 
distributed SQL databases or, or just SQL databases in general. And there's a lot of richness in SQL infrastructure, and there's a lot of historical progress we've made in, in query planning on the SQL side. Is the processing of a GraphQL query of a similar richness, is it that complex? Is there that much depth to a GraphQL query such that we're going to have advancements in the query planning of GraphQL queries for years to come? Well, I think at the core, GraphQL is about an abstraction that you're inserting between your clients and your servers. In the past, you used to have this really tight coupling. So the the core idea here is we're going to let clients describe the data they need. We're going to let servers describe their capabilities. And we're going to create this flexible way to map the client's needs to the server's capabilities. Whereas in the past, we would have written a bunch of code to do that. Now we have the ability to do that automatically. If you can des- describe the service's capabilities with a schema, if you can describe the client's needs with a query, that's what makes it possible for us to think about this as an algorithm like a query plan, instead of thinking about it as, well, I had to write 100 or 1,000 lines of code to get the data from point A to point B. So I, yes, to answer your question, I do think there's going to be more and more that's possible in this layer of the stack. The good news is, though, even simple things at this layer work a lot better than what we were doing previously. So while you can imagine a lot of cool things you can do, some of which relate to query execution, but some of which relate to, for example, um, what does it mean to do security at this layer of the stack? Like, what does it mean to think about GDPR and like understand where our data is coming from and where it's going now that we have this like rich vocabulary for describing our data? Can we predict the load that's going to exist on our servers? For example, like if I see a change that a, a front-end developer is making, can I work that back towards, well, this is, you know, we're going to ship this into this market, which has this much traffic on this page or to this React component. Can I then go to the backend team and say, hey, you might want to consider adding a new gRPC endpoint or something so that, you know, these clients will be able to fetch this data more efficiently based on the data they're trying to fetch. I think there's a lot that we're going to be able to do over time to make the queries even more efficient than they are today. There's, but there's also a lot and that we're without going to... affecting the front end developer's interface. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, it's some of this is around fetching data, but some of this is also around. There's so many cool things that are possible inside this declarative way of thinking. So, for example, in um, GraphQL, GraphQL has the ability to annotate parts of your query. So there is something called at defer. You can actually mark. You know, in the something that's very important in any application is page load time or time to first interaction. So if you're building an application on top of REST, you might have to, you might have a set of data you fetch first and you might render that. And then in the background, you might go fetch another set of data. That way you can have the key page elements or the key app elements like be interactive first while you fetch the other maybe elements that are of secondary importance or the user is going to use second in the background. But that's a whole bunch of code you'd have to write. In GraphQL, if you have all the layers of your stack set up right, you can do all of that declaratively. So you can just mark a part of your GraphQL query is deferred. What will happen in the perfect world, if you have everything set up right, is first, you'll get a packet of data that contains all the data that was the, the sort of the non-deferred part of the query, everything that's necessary to render the page initially. And then as the data that was deferred is available, it can get streamed from the server, like from all the different microservices through the server, through down to your client, Using a client like Apollo Client, that can get pushed directly into your React components or your you know, iOS or Android components. So you're able to take what used to take a lot of custom code to build this really sophisticated functionality about incremental page loading to drive you know, faster time to first interaction. 
But instead of writing any code, you just add one word indicating, you know, what's going to, what should come first and what should come second. So it's, it's kind of comparable to the richness that existed inside SQL for databases. You know, before SQL, your query planner was a human being. Like you had to figure out how your data was going to be stored and how you're going to, you know, walk the indexes and assemble data from different sources. SQL gave us this declarative way of thinking. Now, just by typing a couple words, I can, I can get any combination of data I want. That's really, I think, the place where the comparison to a query planner is really apt because we have this declarative way of approaching what we're trying to do with data fetching. But whereas for SQL, a lot of this was around, a lot of the progress was around performance, but it was also around the ability to do more advanced things like you know, different kinds of aggregates and different kinds of databases that were more performant for certain kinds of workloads. I think there is going to be an analogous set of things for app development, like how do we manage maybe a geographically distributed cache? How do we manage things like app defer? How do we manage live updates? How do we manage security? I think those are some of the directions where we're, you know, now that we have this declarative language for thinking about our data and what we're trying to do with it, that's where I think we're going to see over the next like five or 10 years, a lot of awesome developments in this space. The business opportunity for you today at Apollo, you build a platform around GraphQL called Apollo Platform, and this has things like security management, metrics, Federation, I think you mentioned, is that's kind of a, an enterprise? No, that's, all, that's totally open source. That's totally open, open source. standard open source. Yeah. Okay, all right. Well, yeah. tell me the developer experience of the Apollo platform. If I am using your web interface in addition to the open source GraphQL tooling, what am I getting out of that? So we have a, a SaaS service called Apollo Graph Manager. And as, as far as like what our commercial software offering is, it's mostly that SaaS service, together with the fact that, you know, we will carry a pager 24-7, 365 for the entire Apollo system, you know, the various other ways we can support you and offer expertise. But from a software point of view, everything's open source, and then we have this SaaS service that's complementary to it. The core thing you get in the SaaS service is a graph management platform. So Apollo client, Apollo server, there's a lot of great tooling. As you kind of get beyond one client talking to one server or maybe just a couple of developers just building a single feature or two, you find that it's very advantageous to have not just the data plane, not just the place where the query comes in as process, but a control plane, a system for managing and understanding the contents of your graph and the workflows around it, and a bunch of tooling to help you throughout the development process. So the core of this is a couple of services. Oh, one is a schema service. So you check your you would never think of writing software without checking it into source control. It's very important to understand, like not just which files are checked out on different people's laptops, but to have a source of truth about what your code is today, what different branches exist, what you're about to ship into production, who made which change when. Our schema server provides a single source of truth for the schema of your graph. So you don't have to use it, but by pushing your schema into a server and understanding the different versions of your schema, understanding the different branches of your schema and how it's changing over time, and understanding what your schema is, as opposed to just saying, like, what is, a, what is a particular process exposing right now? It gives you a really powerful base to build a lot of other tools and workflow and processes. So we provide the schema service. There is a client registry, so you can keep track of all the clients that use your graph and what queries they send. And there is an analytics service that collects execution traces that you can send it. So you can build aggregated statistics around which clients are using which fields, you know, what's driving your P99 latency, like for particular you know, screens in your app. So it starts with these basic services. And then on top of that, you can get a fantastic developer experience because now 
Like you can be using VS Code, typing a GraphQL query, and as you're typing the query, we can show you the predicted latency of the query right there in your editor based on live production data. Or you can set it up so it sits inside your CI. So whenever you commit a change to a service that's in the graph, it'll tell you either this change is safe to push or this change is going to go break maybe a particular client, a particular version. It can do that based on the client's registered queries. It can do that based on, based on live, based on actual production traffic. So you can see, hey, if I make this change, I'm going to break a client, but it's a client that's only spent, you know, sent five queries in the last 90 days, and it's probably just an internal dashboard somewhere. And you can go find the person who wrote that, go talk to them. And that really helps with agility. How do you change your graph multiple times a day rather than once every other year? And there's also a set of functionality to help you manage deployment of your GraphQL servers. So especially when you start getting into a federated environment where you have like a gateway and then you have many different backend services, you want every single one of those teams to be able to be on a separate development cycle, all able to push changes whenever they want to. So you need to be constantly comparing all the changes that everyone's making, validating that the types they're referencing and other services um, are correct. And then also you want to have a continuous deployment strategy for your GraphQL service. Uh, for your central gateway, so that even as you're changing all the graphs that go into it, you're keeping the um, your gateway up to date. So there's a set of tools for generating the configuration files for those servers, pushing that configuration you know live and hot into these servers, managing fleet of gateways. So really, the way I look at it, you really need some way of solving those problems. You need like a registry of allowed queries. You need a registry of your schema. You need some sort of analytic service. You could build all that stuff, and some people have. And then on top of that, there's a set of workflows and tools and so on that you want to build. We offer as a managed service an off-the-shelf version of that for people that don't want to make the investment in building all that tooling themselves. The idea of the Apollo business, it is one of these things that looks pretty obvious in retrospect. You have this particular kind of server. You have a GraphQL middleware server, and it has particular characteristics. It would make sense to have an infrastructure provider managing the APIs and the uptime of those servers. Tell me about the day one perspective of what Apollo, the business, was going to be. How did you identify that all of these problems were going to be core to the prototypical GraphQL user? Was there something, I mean, at this point, I guess Facebook had GraphQL widely deployed. Maybe there were some other companies that had GraphQL widely deployed. Were you looking at these other companies who were early adopters of GraphQL and and identifying that they all had all these particular infrastructure problems and therefore if you just built those things as a service, you could have a viable business? I think when we started, there was almost nobody using GraphQL other than Facebook. And this would have been late 2015, I think, that we first started looking at it. Let me tell you the story of how we got here. It's it's definitely um, some twists and turns. So we're the team that originally built Meteor.js, the full-stack JavaScript framework. And, you know, the big vision... fan, by the way. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I, was, I, was a, I was a user of Meteor. I loved it. Yeah. And it's still going strong. Uh, it's, it's still, I think, the fastest and easiest way to build new applications in JavaScript, especially if there's any kind of real-time component. And the genesis of Meteor was, I guess, way back in 2011, we started writing it. We realized we'd crossed some kind of a tipping point in app development where the old ways just weren't cutting it anymore. Like... We used to be you know, pretty happy with Ruby on Rails or PHP or ASP.NET or 
fundamentally all these LAMP stack derivatives that really trace their origins back to the 90s in some cases. This idea, hey, it's going to be, it's, it's CGA bin, man. You know, we're going we're gonna to generate some text, send it over a socket, and that's how our, we're going to build our, our apps. And sometime around, you know, within a couple of years after 2010, we really crossed this point where people were starting to expect a lot more and aim a lot higher. And that meant that there was this need to put an API inside an app. So you needed this way where you're going to send data over the wire instead of HTML. And that was the original genesis of Meteor, actually. It was a set of libraries to do exactly that data transport and solve many of the same problems that Apollo solves today. But when we built the first prototype of that in 2011 and we built the examples for it, they didn't make any sense because like, we're trying to, we're trying to have something like Apollo Client much less sophisticated back then, of course, but we were trying to bind it to like Bootstrap. If you remember, uh, sorry, not Bootstrap. I don't even remember. Like these, these very simple, these very simple JavaScript frameworks that existed back then, like jQuery. Right? It's hard to build an application <laughs> that has like gr a great story for fetching data off the internet and really demonstrate the potential of that if you're if you're in like the world of jQuery. I, I remember that world. And, and so Meteor originated as taking all the other parts that you need to put next to great data fetching to build a modern app development experience. And the way that we were able to get that out the door in 2012 was by integrating everything very tightly because all the stuff was new. So by integrating a particular database, a particular front-end experience with a particular set of data fetching protocols and so on, we're able to build this amazing thing. And the limitation that Meteor has is that it's designed for new app development. So you, it has a lot of opinions. You have to take all of its opinions. If you take all of its opinions, it's going to be great. But what happened was over the course of the next, and, and like Meteor at its peak was one of the top 10 most starred projects on GitHub. When we launched Meteor 1.0, I think there were local Meteor meetups in 134 cities around the world on the same day. So it got really big. And we had this huge advantage, which is we were able to talk to the Meteor community, which included more and more enterprises trying to deploy Meteor at scale with like more and more complex applications. Scale, not just in terms of, uh, how many like people were using the application, but how many people were developing the application, how many data sources there were that the application needed to talk to. We were seeing these crazy enterprise use cases where people were synchronizing data from many different places around the enterprise into MongoDB just to get it into Meteor. <laughs> they weren't using MongoDB for anything else, but because you had to use MongoDB with Meteor. I thought it was RethinkDB. I always hoped that Rethink would come out with great live query functionality that would make Meteor's life a lot easier, mm. but it was... Um, it was Mongo. I'm misremembering. Yeah, yeah we okay. made a huge investment in Mongo um, to like read the replication log. We re-implemented re the whole like MongoDB query engine in JavaScript on the client end. Like, you know, Meteor accomplished what it accomplished through some like really intense computer science <laughs> at the end of the day. And so we were sitting here at the end of 2015. We were starting to think about Meteor 2.0. And we said, and we were going through the user request for what Meteor 2.0 should do. And we'd heard clearly from the user community. It needs to work more than, with more than just MongoDB. It needs to be able to pull in data from any source. And it needs to work with any front end too, not just JavaScript, because Cordova, PhoneGap, like that had not solved every mobile app developer's problem. And we were in a world where people wanted to use a wide variety of things on the front end, React, React Native, iOS, Android. We thought we had a really clear mandate from the user community to do a second version of the Meteor data system that was data source agnostic and could integrate data from multiple sources. 
We'd also seen very clearly from the community that we wanted a declarative approach to data fetching. So we wanted to, and, and in particular, we wanted to co-locate the description of a UI component's data requirements inside the UI component. We'd also seen what it takes to scale to the world's largest, most demanding websites, but we needed to accomplish in terms of just, you know, the traffic that something that our system could stand up to. And the other thing we'd seen very clearly for Meteor is Meteor was based on this idea of like vertical integration, really. Like we're going to integrate all the layers of the stack to give you a wonderful experience end to end if you take all the parts of our stack and the cost of that will be you have less ability to swap out different layers of the stack and it's, you have less ability to use it in existing applications. We'd seen the rise of React, which competed with you know, Meteor's UI system, Blaze. And we'd seen how React was able to, from our point of view, like even though Blaze, I think, was more established earlier and did many of the same things that React did, React was able to grow so much faster than Blaze and then Meteor because React could be used in existing applications. It was incrementally adoptable. They didn't try to solve every part of the stack. They took one layer of the stack and they tried to do it really well. So we said, for the next thing we do for Meteor, for this data system we're going to build to meet the needs of the Meteor community, we want to make really sure it's incrementally adoptable and compatible with everything and highly scalable, both in terms of kind of like query throughput, but also in terms of uh, the size of teams that can use it. So that started this project to go build a new data system for Meteor. And one of the first things we needed was a query language because we'd used the MongoDB query language as the core query language for Meteor. But now that we're going to support any number of different data sources, we needed a data source agnostic way to take different data sources and map them all back to a, a common uh, schema or language. And that wasn't a new idea for us. You know, we actually uh, almost went that way with Meteor in the beginning. Like, you know, there was a point in time when it was really Meteor versus Derby, and Meteor took this approach of being locked into one database, and Derby took an approach that was more about mapping to existing databases. Anyway, GraphQL was the right thing at the right time for us. I think it was, it was shortly after, you know, Facebook had released the spec, and we said, you know, this is perfect. It is a great language. It's really beautiful. It's proven at scale, and it's database agnostic. And so we set out to make GraphQL the basis for the new Meteor data system. And we decided to call it something other than Meteor. We called it Apollo because we wanted to clearly communicate that it was something you could use independent of the rest of Meteor. And you know, we started from the um, client out because the first thing we needed to do was replicate the kind of functionality that exists inside Meteor, inside the live data system and you know, the GDP wire protocol and a lot of that stuff. And so we took what we learned from building those systems inside Meteor and built Apollo Client. Our motto for Apollo Client was, by the community for the community. We really focused on listening very closely to everyone's use cases and building functionality against like very concrete, very specific needs that people had. And we've really just continued that exact pattern over the years of trying to build great stuff that people love to use and then listening to those people and asking, what problems are you running into? And you know, that led us to then invest more in the server side when we heard about uh, the challenges people were having on the server, which led to Apollo Server. That led us to first build a set of management and monitoring tooling not long after that, which was you know, ultimately formed the basis of a graph manager. And then that led to us starting to build the schema server functionality maybe two years ago now. And then that also led to Apollo Federation, you know, which we worked on for about a year and released earlier this year. But all of that's been driven by really just a dialogue with the user community and listening to people and asking like, you know, what's the biggest roadblock you're encountering? How can we help you? And 
just trying to do good kind of project management, like stack ranking the things that are the biggest friction points for the community and um, addressing that. And, you know, I think bringing it back to your question, you asked like, you know, the model of a, a SaaS service that sits next to some open source as a way of building a business that existed from day one for us. That was the way Meteor was, for example, like I really believe in that model, which is open source, all the stuff that should naturally be open source and the things that should naturally be a managed service, make that a managed service. Don't try to force your business model on a problem. Start with like, what would be best for your users? Because I think if you don't do that and you're a business, you're going to get your butt kicked by someone who does. And, you know, the example I give it this, I call this the complementary product model. Like you think about everything your users want. You say, is there naturally an open source piece and naturally a SaaS piece? GitHub's a great example of that. Oh, like, yeah. yeah. Beautifully said. And there's so much in what you just said that I, I want to I wanna discuss. But sticking to the, the subject of Meteor and the gradual product evolution to... Uh, Apollo, it's it's a beautiful story because you have this one project that was having at first tremendous success, but perhaps was undercut by its fully integrated, opinionated, uh, I mean, necessity, you know, as opposed to Ruby on Rails, where you can sort of take it apart uh, over time, you can, you know, iterate one thing away and, and swap it out for another. I don't think that was as much the case with Meteor. And then you'd kind of tried to get there, and you found that one of your pieces was actually more valuable than Meteor in terms of how much resource do we actually have to allocate for a startup. And then you eventually got to the point where you said, we have to basically focus completely on the Apollo side of things, even though the Meteor side of things may be viable as well? Am I, am I understanding yeah. correctly? Yeah, look, and my North Star here, my personal mission in this business is to help app developers help the world. I think there's an enormous upside possible with information technology, and I think we're only scratching the surface. Apps are still so time-consuming and so hard to write. I think we're you know, barely 1% of the potential of all this cool stuff we've built, like mobile devices, operating systems, the cloud, like the things you can build on top of that are incredible, but apps take so long to write. And I think that um, from my point of view, like there's a huge role that app developers can play in just making a ton of cool things happen in the world if we can empower app developers to not spend so much time on boilerplate code, but have a chance to create awesome things for users. Because you think about it, the app in many ways is really the point of value creation. We do all this work on the backend side and on the infrastructure, it's when a user gets to touch that app that, that it all pays off. Okay. And so, you know, Meteor, that came from a goal of um, empowering app developers. And we've tried to sort of always ask, what's the best thing we can do in that direction? But yeah, I mean, Meteor, Meteor was a great business for us. It was profitable, it, it you know, grew nicely, and uh, it's, um, it's a really great solution if you want an integrated platform. But I think if you zoom out and ask, how do we do our best job of helping app developers help the world? The answer is you need a coalition. You need a lot of people working together to build a platform that everyone buys into. And the design properties inside Meteor that made it such a great integrated experience made it not impossible, but harder to swap out the pieces. And honestly, I think one of the biggest challenges inside the Meteor stack is just that stuff was written so early. Like, it does have pretty clean interfaces inside of it. Like, Blaze can be used independently of live data, can be used independently of, you know, uh, ISO build and like the, the other components of the stack. It's just, 
all that stuff was written like before those ideas were really very widespread. And it was meteor faced such a difficult education problem in explaining to people like how like meteor latency compensation or like just all this crazy stuff worked. And the consequence of that is I think with meteor, we got really far out ahead of the community in terms of what was going on inside of meteor. And you kind of needed to work at, past a certain point. You kind of needed to work at Meteor Development Group to understand how some of the technology worked because there's just so much and it was so hard to absorb. So we learned from that. And now we think, you know, sometimes what's more important and more valuable than shipping this amazing algorithm that's going to make things 10% better for your users, sometimes what's more valuable is building a little bit more of a consensus, building a little bit more of a coalition, taking things a step at a time, getting one batch of ideas out there, getting commentary from the community, hearing other people's ideas, letting that all kind of circulate and settle. And then, okay, then maybe in three months or six months, you take the next step, as opposed to racing ahead and trying to ship a ton of futuristic stuff that may be really cool, but hasn't really been developed in that like iterative fashion and dialogue with the community. So Meteor still does a lot of stuff that you can't get anywhere else, like automatic live queries, for example, like GraphQL will have that eventually. You can wire it up yourself today with a lot of effort, but Meteor's had it from day one. That's the advantage. But I think that the advantage of that we have on the Apollo side is by focusing on one layer of the stack and really pacing ourselves in terms of, we were talking earlier about all the potential in the data graph. Like we want to build that together with people. We don't want to race ahead and figure it out all by, by ourselves. We want to integrate with all of the other stuff around us in the stack to create this really healthy ecosystem around app development. Can you take me inside the company at the moment where you decided to sell off Meteor and focus completely on Apollo? Let's see. So that was quite a few years after we started working on Apollo because our original, our original vision was, hey, these things can coexist and Meteor will be a great Difficult tool. for a startup. Yeah, it, it is hard. But I mean, we also had, like Meteor was increasingly mature and you know, the hard part looked like the Apollo side, not the Meteor side. And we thought that Meteor could be a great out-of-the-box toolkit for building Apollo apps. So if you, you know, if, if you want to bring this technology into existing application, use Apollo. And if you want an off-the-shelf pre-configured set of things that work great, that's Meteor. And you know, we were gradually making all the other, and we, we've made a ton of like improvements and modernizations in Meteor to make it like work with NPM and React and all these, all these sorts of things to keep it up to date with um, the development of technology. The key learning for us though, was Apollo started growing like really fast, like Meteor had grown fast, but Apollo grew really fast mm. because Apollo, like the thesis about incremental adoption was actually right. And also Apollo got a lot more traction in the enterprise a lot faster, precisely because the problem that Apollo and GraphQL solves about integrating multiple data sources at scale is it's a challenge that we all face, but it's especially a challenge you face in the enterprise. And we got to the point where we thought, well, we'll raise more money, hire more people, or all these ways you have as a startup of getting more resources. But we had this realization that as long as Meteor and Apollo existed inside the same, the same company, Apollo was going to starve Meteor for resources because every time we had an incremental dollar, every time we had an incremental hour, we were going to spend it on the thing that was growing so much faster where we had like so many more users with so many feature requests and so many more immediate things we could do that'd be so valuable to people. So that's what finally led us to the search to say, hey, we need to find a new steward for Meteor, someone that's going to make this their number one thing and someone that's going to invest you know, time and money in it because 
I really do believe in the power and potential of that platform. And I, you know, I know it's going to be a long time before we can bring all the stuff that Meteor has to, you know, Apollo. And so we ultimately did find that partner that in Tiny Capital, who wants to invest in the platform, has a great history of building community, has a great history of working with things that have a strong like design-led component. And I'm really excited about how that's all gotten wrapped up and what it means for the Meteor community. I have to uh, admit, I misunderstood what happened at Meteor from a distance. I thought that Meteor had lost enough traction that your company had to search for another business. And that's not really what happened at all. That's not really what happened. It's more that... But uh, what I will say, it did feel like Meteor got perhaps disrupted by React. Like React became such a disruptive force that it was almost dangerous to be doing a lot of work on a front-end framework. Meteor is great for rapid application development. But Meteor, I think many developers, I think there are times in history where people write software by starting with integrated frameworks. And there are times in history where people write software by bringing together lots of libraries because they want that flexibility and choice. They want to build this, I think to use MBA terminology, like a best of breed solution to their stack. And what happened is in the wake of, you know, 2011, 2012, I'd like to think like maybe partially inspired by some of the stuff we did with Meteor, there was just this explosion of like activity and creativity in the JavaScript ecosystem. And so many new things were getting created. And the idea that you would, you know, for the most ambitious developers maybe, or the most developers with the most resources or experience, the idea that you'd be tied down to a particular set of, you know, modules that is fixed, that only changes slowly, means you'd be giving up the upside of like all these cool things were coming out like every week that you could slot in. And so... That was really the challenge that Meteor faced, that for the people that really like to move fast and use cutting edge technology, who are, if not the most influential, certainly the loudest people in the industry, like the people you hear about on Twitter, Meteor really lost the attention of those people that wanted to try the latest and greatest and combine lots of different pieces. Because the whole idea of Meteor was to give you this very easy to use interface, and for us that meant stability. That same property though made Meteor really appealing to a different group of people people who could trust that the APIs were going to stay the same and that like the people who thought that JavaScript fatigue was a bug rather than a feature. And it just meant that like, it's almost more of a maturity curve. Like Meteor moved on to kind of like the late majority part of the market instead of the early adopter part of the market. It's a great mature technology for people that don't want their framework to change every year. And that's another way to tell the story because one of the other key moments for me was we added React support to Meteor. We saw that React was getting bigger and bigger, and we said, okay, great, we'll add React alongside Blaze as another option inside Meteor. And one piece of feedback we got from quite a few people was, I'd rather you hadn't done that, because I like that Meteor has one standard UI library. I like that we have this whole ecosystem of packages that all can assume that you're using Blaze. I like that we have these amazing like full stack form processing packages that combine like, you know, client side validation and server side validation and like link to your database schema. It's like all the pieces fitting so beautifully together to give this like this beautiful modular high level functionality that's only possible when you depend on Blaze and Live Data and MiniMongo and like all these components. And so one of the take homes there is like there's pros and cons to each approach. Like the fully integrated approach gives you things that you can't get if you have the interchangeable parts approach. 
But the interchangeable parts approach is what the early adopters are going to be using when technology is changing really quickly. So I think that's kind of what the fork was. There are people that are very happy with Meteor. There are people that are very happy with the you know modern JavaScript, like combine lots of different, different libraries approach. My prediction is that over some period of time, we are going to see in JavaScript more of a convergence toward standard frameworks. I think that day may be some ways away yet because there's still so much change that's happening. And in the meantime, you know, I think, so the pendulum may yet shift toward kind of these like fully integrated approaches, kind of like how, you know, probably in the late nineties, there was also a very turbulent period where people are inventing all sorts of new ways to build web applications. And maybe by the mid two thousands, a lot of that had settled down and best practices have been figured out. And, you know, you started to see the emergence of more things like rails or more opinionated and more structured. I think we're still, still in a period where like the thing you hear about the most on Twitter, at least is going to be the approaches where you are combining lots of different pieces and keeping your options open. But I'm also hopeful that, you know, over the next, I don't know how many years, as we do find the right patterns, that Apollo will ultimately be a part of whatever that, you know, standard stack is. While we're on the subject of stuff in the future, you may not have any perspective on this, but if you do have a perspective, you're somebody who I really want to know your perspective on it. Do you have any beliefs about how the no-code or low-code platforms might merge or intersect or interface with this quickly evolving choose-your-own-adventure world of React and Apollo and JavaScript stuff on the front end? Yeah, absolutely. I think about, you know, what's an app? I think about that in kind of like this very broad way. I think of an app as anything we do that takes all this great stuff that exists in the cloud and makes it useful to people. And often apps are about two things. They're about combining functionality and they're about distributing functionality. So if I think about like something like Lyft or Uber, there's a whole bunch of services behind that. Like there's a real-time marketplace of riders and drivers and there's a navigation service and there's a review service and there's a payment service. Each of those things independently doesn't solve any problem that I as a user have, but if you combine them together, then it solves a problem I do have, which is I'm here and I want to be there. And all these things like combine give you that great experience. So it's about combining capabilities into a solution. And then it's about taking that solution and bringing it to wherever people are. So if I could only use Lyft or Uber on my desktop, it wouldn't be that useful. It's really key that I be able to have it on my phone so it's in my pocket whenever I am. And I think in the same way, you know, What's going to happen in the future, if we think about apps broadly, is we're going to find more and more ways to take all this cool stuff that exists in the cloud. And the cloud is like this like world of genies that can answer any wish you have, right? If you combine the wishes in the right way so it's actually useful to you. We're going to find more and more ways, more and more platforms for pushing this stuff into the real world, whether that's like mobile platforms, whether that's Apple Watch, whether that's Home Assistance, whether that's like IoT or even just whether it's API so that I can take the functionality of company A and integrate it into, you know, website B so that like if all, you know, if whenever I want to listen to music, Spotify's there or whenever I want to like um, travel, um, Expedia is there. So I, I think but that's a service or a building block or whatever. Yeah, it's a building block. Cause like fundamentally like what businesses do is they develop these capabilities and they want to figure out how they can get like people to use these capabilities. So they need that distribution. So they have to go to where the users are with like solutions that work for the user. So. Today, we do all that by writing a bunch of code. Like every time we want to use cloud services in a different way, we have to go build a new app. And that just seems natural to us 
because it's the only way we know. But I think in the future, it's going to look crazy. <laughs> I think we're going to write, still going to write apps in the future. I think we're going to write more and more and more apps. But I think in the future, you're not going to need to write a new app every time you want to do something in the cloud. We're going to find more flexible ways to do that. And I think GraphQL and the data graph is one of the enabling technologies for that. Because right now, if you try to solve that problem, you get immediately blocked by the fact that you have all these like very confusing custom ad hoc REST APIs out there. It's like a whole bunch of endpoints. Only a human can know what those REST endpoints do. But with a data graph, suddenly the stuff in the cloud is introspectable. Like you can query it and see what's the schema, what's available. And now you can go into like your low code, no code editor and you can like visually view the schema and you can like bind it to UI components. Like there should be a beautiful drag and drop like visual builder type interface possible here when we're able to build on top of a data graph and looking a little bit farther out, you know, why can't I just ask my, you know, voice assistant for you know, data and services in the cloud? And like, why can't there be some, a little bit of semantic metadata to help them understand like, you know, what's out there? Like, do I have to write code every time I need to, I want to use things in the cloud? The missing thing is this declarative layer. It's this abstraction layer so that we can kind of properly tag and expose all the services in the cloud. And that's exactly what the data graph is. So I think we're gonna see the concept of apps be broadened to be not just when we write code, but a lot of other you know, low code, no code ways of interacting with data and services in the cloud. I think we're gonna see the ways that those services are distributed, the way they come into our lives are gonna be broader and broader. You know, whether it's like AR and VR or like voice assistance, how many of these technologies will survive and flourish and what new things have we not yet even invented? I don't know, but it's going to become more and more ubiquitous in our lives. And I think all of that's going to be powered by like one of the building blocks for that is better APIs instead of, you know, 20 year old REST API technology that was designed to do something totally different. Do you see this as a marketplace opportunity for you? As in Uber plugs in their marketplace API somehow and you expose a GraphQL thing and somebody can consume it using GraphQL or am I just way off base? Here? Well, more and more companies are making their APIs be GraphQL yeah, based. Yeah, yeah. And the reason for this is really interesting. All the reasons why you'd want to have a GraphQL API internally are even 10x more true if you think about the API you want to expose to a third party. Like GitHub was the, fir was the first yeah. one to do this, right? Yeah, GitHub was um, an early one. You know, Shopify, Yelp, some more examples. You know, if you think about either GitHub or Shopify, let's look at the problem they were trying to solve. They said, we want to be a platform company. We want GitHub to be the center of software development. We want Shopify to be the center of commerce. That means we need lots of different people to be able to plug into us. So we need to make it very easy for people to build on top of us. And we need to make sure that our, those users have great experiences. Like if you're Shopify, it's really important that if I have some plugin that's gonna sit inside my checkout flow, that that thing load instantly because every millisecond delay is gonna hurt conversion. So I've gotta give them a good API. And if you look at REST APIs, if you think about what your development cadence is like when you're building an application, you're constantly building new REST endpoints because the odds are good that the REST endpoints you have today aren't the REST endpoints you need to build the feature you're building today. You need a slightly different combination of fields, slightly different combination of data. Your backend for front-end team is always building these endpoints for you or your backend team, you have to go to your backend team and ask them for these endpoints. And it's a ton of code that can't make your app good. It can only make it bad. <laughs> it can harm security, you know, performance, maintainability. It's just a bunch of glue code. And there's a ton of it. <laughs> 
but at least you all work at the same company. And at least, you know, somewhere up the management chain, there's someone who, you know, you all report to and who thinks this future should get built and can help straighten out like everyone's priorities. That's not the case when you're talking about your public API where you're trying to enable your partners. Like your partners are like, okay, hey, you guessed at some rest endpoints I was going to need. The odds that you got that right are slim. <laughs> and I'm going to be stuck trying to cobble together whatever I was trying to build on top of your, you know, scientific wild guesses about what I was going to need. If I need a different endpoint, I'm going to have to go back to you and ask for it. It might take six months for you to ship that new version of your API with that endpoint. It gets so bad that what you often find when people have APIs that are really important to their business, they end up assigning, they end up staffing those APIs with developers that are paired with a particular partners. And their only job is to build the rest endpoints that those partners need. Just like you'd have a back and for front end team inside your company, but you have to do it like you have to do it with all your API partners. So the fact is that this idea that you're going to invest in an API and share it with your partners and you're going to be done is a myth, at least with rest, because with rest, rest APIs are inherently point to point. They're not like this flexible marketplace. It's like you can build point to point connections, but that's probably not going to be enough to enable your partners. So that's what's driven people to want to adopt, to share their data graph, to adopt public GraphQL APIs or GraphQL APIs for their partners. And we have a, have a few people that have um, you know, gone first. I, I know that there are quite a few companies that have this on their 2020 roadmap. And I think it's going to be a really exciting time because it means that all the APIs we use we're going to have a much more flexible and fluid way to get at those data and, data and services. And if we have an API, it means that we're going to see, we're going to unlock a whole lot more amazing use cases on top of the functionality we've already built. It's going to be more ways to take all of our cool stuff and reach end users, not just directly, but through all these other people's applications. If an app is all about combining related functionality to solve a problem and distributing it, like these public data graph APIs are such an important part of that because suddenly I can combine my functionality with another company's functionality, like to reach users. So we're at the beginning of this. And I think the, the key thing about it is to digress for one minute, you know, people who have been fantasizing about this data graph thing for a long time, I think there was a Tim Berners-Lee article in like 2001 where he, he lays out his vision for the semantic web. And his vision for the semantic web is like, everything inside the data graph and then like 90% more stuff, right? <laughs> and here we are in 2019. There's been so many attempts, you know, whether it's like so many different attempts that to build this that have, um, have happened. And Diff I think it's pretty good. I don't know if you've seen Diffbot. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. And Google had one, Google Knowledge, whatever, or something. Well, it's also like there was, this, there was RDF, there was Sparkle, you know, there was an enormous investment by W3C around this, like... People have been trying to do this for a while. And this, by this, in case people have lost the thread, oh. uh, basically a queryable way of targeting any object on the web. Yeah, a queryable API. So first I'm going to have some kind of a schema, a map of your data, and then I'm going to give you that a query language. That is something richer than HTML. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, objects with fields of some kind yeah. at minimum. Yeah. And in some way I can query that and say, I want a little bit of this, a little bit of that, join it with this other thing and wrap it up in a bow and give it to me. The key insight that's made it work this time in 2019, it's about the fact that the users have to lead the way. And here's what I mean by that. 
there's one point of view on how you would build a data graph or a semantic web or whatever terminology you want to use that says we should bring in a bunch of analysts and the analysts should interview everyone at my business and they should draw the layout of our data on a whiteboard. Oh, no. And, you know, this is really appealing if you're coming from a consulting background, an academic background. There are a lot of problems that can be solved this way. So what happens at the end of a year? You've got a whole bunch of whiteboards full of diagrams. If you implement that, you're going to find that it's not what users want. And the users will give you valuable feedback about why it stinks. You maybe spend another year. Now you've got another set of whiteboards. And again, you're a year out of date. So the approach of having it be driven by sort of analyst doesn't work because you never capture like what's really going on fast enough or in a complete enough way. It's, it's, too, it's a waterfall approach instead of an agile approach. And for all the reasons that, that doesn't work in other areas of software, it doesn't work to build the map of all your data. The other approach that people try sometimes is say, okay, well, let's just go to the backend team. Let's go to the people that maintain the databases. They know the layout of the data, right? They should build the map of the data. And this is sort of the approach that something like OData tends to take. And the problem with that is they know how they implemented it, yes. But do they know how it's used? Like you end up with the value of a data graph is it serves as an abstraction layer between the users and the suppliers of something so that, they, so that you can refactor how your backend works without disturbing all the clients in the field. And if you start from the backend or you start from the database layout, you end up with something that's really tightly coupled to your implementation. And you lose a lot of the benefits because it's, you know, you've effectively just thrown away the biggest benefit of the system, which is that the clients are independent of the implementation of your backend. And you've also probably made it more friction than there needs to be for the users of your API, the app developers, to use it because, well, you never asked their opinion. You just started with, hey, I already know like the layout of my gRPC or my thrift endpoints, or I know the layout of my SQL tables. So the thing that makes the data graph work so well is that it is it's an agile approach and it's focused on the users. Like, like in any endeavor in life, if you start with the users in mind, things often go better. So data graphs are typically built by product engineering teams that start, that take this very incremental approach. They, they I'm trying to build this feature. I'm gonna take, uh, you know, I need pieces of data one, two, and three. I need that in my graph so I can power my feature, okay. And tools like Apollo Server make it very easy to, like, in the space of hours or even minutes, like, just define a type, like, write a couple of lines of JavaScript to, you know, go fetch data out of whatever other API you have and put it into this form, and you're up and running with the graph. And so you, you keep running that loop, whereas you're building features, each feature motivates what you add to the graph. And that means that the graph is always being built from the point of view of the end user, and it's always in the structure that's going to create the most value for that end user. And then together with tools like Apollo Graph Manager, having a schema server, having good CI, CD, you know, you can get to the point where you don't have to version this and release a new version every year. You can be constantly changing it as you learn. And those, it's those two things that have made it possible to solve this problem that a lot of people had given up on, which is building this like large, larger organizational map of your data. Now I'm going to bring it back to what we need to do to get to this world of public APIs because we can see the value that's be there. We need to figure out how we're going to apply these same agile practices to public APIs. So you as the user of an API, you need an easy way to give feedback about what's working for you and what's not, and feeding that back into the people that are providing the API. And you as the person who's providing an API, you need to have a really fine-grained understanding of like how are people using your API, what's working for them, what's not, what are they building, what's driving demand. And I think it's really building that, that tooling so an API isn't like a waterfall, like throw it over the wall and run away, see you in a year 
kind of thing, but it's a constant like workflow or collaboration or dialogue. Like that's what we need to do to get to the point where APIs on the internet work right so that we can really build all these, you know, realize all these cool possibilities that should come from being able to connect all of our services and all of our capabilities. What's the hardest engineering problem you've had to solve at Apollo in recent memory? I think the hardest problem we've had to solve recently was Apollo Federation. And so Apollo Federation is our technology that lets you, instead of having one monolithic data graph, you can build many different separate GraphQL services and combine them all into one graph. And I think the reason why it would have been easy to build something that sounded really cool and that you could build a cool demo or two against I think that the nature of something like Federation, though, is that it has to come from real, from real world use cases. So Federation was a very interesting experience in talking to a lot of people who are using one of our previous solutions for this, which was called schema stitching, and hearing what was working for them and what wasn't working for them. And it turns out, though the final spec is pretty simple, there's a ton of complexity inside there that captures, like it kind of mirrors the complexity that exists in real world environments. Like, how are we going to reference an object, for example? Is it going to be sufficient to have, like, say that every ID, every object has an ID and a global namespace of IDs? That's something that was tried previously in the GraphQL community. It was, like, challenging for a lot of people in production for a lot of different reasons. It worked very well at Facebook because, like, they actually do have, like, one graph and every graph has a node. And, like, <laughs> you know, GraphQL at Facebook is, is, you know, almost a query language for a database they have. Is, right. this, is this, like, big graph database? Right, right. They are a semantic web. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a different use case in some ways on the back-end side. On the front-end side, it's the same use case. But on the back-end side, like the way a lot of that's implemented is actually a pretty different perspective. As you look at the complexity that exists in the real world, you discover that you know sometimes people, like they're going to want to have different primary keys for different objects. They're going to sometimes going to want to have primary, uh, a compound primary keys. They're sometimes going to want to have compound primary keys for which some of the elements that go into the key exist not in the object in question, but inside an object that's related to the object. Like, so for example, if, you know, I have user and a user is associated, a user has a username, but the username is, is unique only inside of a particular country, then maybe I need to recurse into like the address object and to grab the country code. That's not quite the right example, but you see what I mean? You know, so, or like if we think about execution of a GraphQL query being distributed across several servers, because the alternative is a monolithic server, which, you know, we, we talked to so many people where their graph was getting so big that having one code base maintained by one team that contained their entire graph was like just not working anymore. You know, you have to think about the actual way, like in a perfect world, you know, the data layout is super clean and beautiful. In the real world, different services reference objects with different keys. Data is normalized in a different way. Different services need inputs from other services in order to compute the things that they need to compute. So Federation was a really satisfying experience of talking with a lot of users and thinking, wow, these, these problems look really complex. But it turns out that like all the complex problems really were just, in many ways, pointing a finger at a couple of things that had to be true about the design. And when we got those things right, the rest fell out really naturally. So it's been very gratifying to see more and more people adopt Federation and to see how, you know, it's also a very simple spec in the end. And so it's been so much fun to see this get adopted across the GraphQL community from servers in many different languages. So I think that was a hard problem that we got right. 
The other thing I'd say about that design is there's a lot of other cool stuff we wanted to do there. We left probably 80% of it on the cutting room floor. I'm sure. You know, following up on what I said earlier, you know, you take the stuff at a step at a time, ship a little bit, get feedback, see if you got it right. Then you're in a much better position. You know, the next step you want to take, you can bring that to people and say, what do you think about this? And if the community has already sort of internalized and critiqued and responded to and gained some production experience with the first step, you're going to get a lot better directional input and course correction and prioritization of like that next chunk of functionality. We're already up against time, but I, on the note of federation, I think the Kubernetes community is also very early in its days of how Kubernetes federation is going to be done. But this idea of you have this infrastructure that today, because of all this legacy cruft is very heterogeneous. We're starting to have a vision for how it becomes more mm-hmm. homogenous. And as it becomes more homogenous, the way of providing some consistency and some control is is that federation model, whether we're talking about GraphQL servers or just servers more generally, but containers. Last question. You founded Monument, which is a live-work event space in the city. And this is one side project you have. I am sure you have other side projects. Do you find that side projects, if you're thinking, if you're objectively cold about it, are side projects useful for thinking laterally about your business? Or do you think they're ultimately distraction? Well, I think it depends on the side project. I think it depends on you too. I think for me, peak performance is about getting the right balance of divergent and convergent thinking. Like divergent thinking is when do you go broad? When do you generate lots of ideas and kind of explore the ramifications in in lots of different directions and like open lots of doors, see what's behind the doors. And then convergent thinking is, okay, I've got this whole universe of possibilities, but now we have to do something. Now we have to finish something. Let's select and edit and winnow that down to the point that we have something really crisp that we can execute on. And I think that for me, I really try to invest in divergent thinking you have to put an equal amount of energy, I think, into convergent thinking if you're going to invest in <laughs> divergent thinking, because otherwise you end up like diverged. You've got, <laughs> you've right. got a thousand ideas, like you're uh, sitting in front of a whiteboard. I've and, been like, there. Yeah, it's not yeah. <laughs> You've probably been there too. Yeah. Or, or another saying I have, um, little freedom is the ability to do anything you want. Big freedom is the ability to do exactly what you want. Take your pick. You have to make some commitments if you want to go deep. You have to give up a little bit of little freedom to get some big freedom. So yeah, I think it's all about kind of having the right portfolio, I think, of things that broaden your horizons and things that you really focus on and get good at. And for me, so much of what I do is motivated by people. What I really personally love is when I can share a magical experience with someone. And, you know, that was that was part of what drove the early days of Meteor. It's part of why I love being a startup founder, because when I see people join our company and they get great career outcomes and they get to talk at a conference in front of hundreds or thousands of people and talk about the future of software development and like have that moment in their career, like that's a magical experience for me. When app developers are able to build things faster than they otherwise could, and you can cut out all that like boring stuff that makes you hate your job and build the stuff that like you find really like energizing and empowering and exciting when you get to do something that just like blows the user's mind. Like I love giving that to people. So I get a lot of energy from that. And you know, so a big reason why I do Monument, I just love meeting people. Like I love meeting people in the, you know, broader San Francisco community outside of tech. And it's gotten so hard for people that don't have tech jobs to survive here. So a big reason why we do that project is we want to provide a low cost event space for, you know, events that can't ex- afford the venues that are so expensive now, some lower cost places to live for people that, you know, they're doing something with their life that 
maybe is just as valuable for society, but doesn't pay in the same way as, you know, some of the, you know, awesome jobs we have in tech right now. So for me to have those people around me and be a little bit more multidimensional, it helps me remind me like why I work so hard. So it's energizing for me. Jeff Schmidt, thanks for coming on the show. Really great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an exciting time to be alive if you're a software engineer with all of these planetary scale systems we're trying to figure out how to build. I look back at where we were 10 or 20 years ago and it feels like things are moving so slow, but like so much has happened. And, you know, it's, it's always a, awesome to get a chance to sit down with you and reflect on like some of the things that are changing our world. 